What's good, guys? It's your host, Adrian Evans. Welcome to the Black Wealth Media Podcast, where we dive into the stories of black entrepreneurs and we talk about how we can create wealth and build legacy within the black community. Let's get into this episode. Austin, what's going on, man? Not too much, man. How you doing? Good, good. Can't complain, man. Welcome to the Black Wolf Media Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Adrian Evans. And here I have a special guest, Austin Greer. Uh, he is a real estate developer. And Austin, if you don't mind, man, why don't you go ahead and uh, give us a little bit of background on yourself? Yeah, so um, in my, I have a company, Wolf Anchor Properties. It's a, uh, like you said, a real estate development company, real estate investment company. I started it initially just to uh, manage and facilitate my own real estate deals. And then in the last few years, uh, it's been a vehicle for me to help make investing in real estate more accessible for those who either do not have the not the time or the funds to do it on their own. Uh, so that's, that's the crash course on it. Okay, cool. So how did you, um, like what motivated you to get into real estate? Um, you know, I think I, I think I got into real estate the way that most people who weren't, you know, born into it get into it. And I just I bought something essentially is what happened. So I was this is in 2016. So I was 25 years old mm. and I had in every place I had ever lived up into that point, I had rented. And so, you know, I was the job I had at that point in the city I was in at that point, I had you know, kind of a desire to be there long term. So I was like, well, I'm going to be here. Might as well buy something. But I was under the impression that that would be both difficult and expensive. But as I was doing my homework, you know, just kind of talking to my sources, talking to my folks at the bank, talking to realtors that I know, talking to lawyers that I knew, um, it became readily apparent to me that this could be way easier than I thought it could be. Yeah. And so then after I purchased, so I purchased a condo, I purchased it down the street from a a quickly developing university. And what happened was I bought that condo, let's just say, for an example of the numbers. Let's say I bought it for 50. Um, in the three years that I lived in it, the values in that area specifically boomed. And so if I bought it at 50 and it was worth 50 when I bought it, when I moved out of it, um, they were selling for like 94 to 100. Wow. So, yeah. That's pretty dope, man. So, yeah. like, when you um, when you rent it out, is it pretty much like you know you're getting your mortgage paid? Like, when yeah, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. As a matter of fact, so I mean, one way to look, one way to look at having a rental property. So I should say this: there's a few ways to invest in real estate. No one way is better than another. On its face, it's just each one of the different ways to do it are gonna. Um, work differently for different people depending on, you know, your kind of um, appetite for risk, you know, how much money you have on hand, how much knowledge and support, how much of a network you have, whatever the case may be. One of the most accessible kinds of investments when it comes to real estate is what we call buy and hold or landlord. So that is to own property and then to rent it out. So the benefit there, of course, um, probably the most obvious benefit is that you have this property, you own it, but you're not paying for, you know, the debt obligation or the mortgage payment on it from a month to month standpoint. 
hopefully because you haven't rented. So yeah, essentially you're getting the mortgage paid. And then above and beyond that, assuming that what you're charging for rent is more than your mortgage payment, there should be some profit there too. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, um, you know, has real estate, has it always been a desire for you to get into real estate or did you have like different goals prior to that? No, actually I hadn't before I bought my home. I hadn't thought about real estate really like for my own personal financial recipe, so to speak. Like, so I've always had, you know, a kind of dream and fantasy of being able to develop a city level, you know what I mean? Or like a city-esque kind of project where, you know, me and my people can go and live on our terms, so to speak. You know what I mean? The, the, the black Amish um, establishment with TVs and cars. So, you know what I mean? But so I had that kind of dream, but I hadn't really thought about, you know, what I would need to do on an individual level to be able to do that. Or more accurately, I didn't think I needed to do that on an individual level to be able to get there. Um, But I know different now. I know that if you're going to, if you're going to develop a city, you most certainly better be able to handle a a single family deal, you know, or or you're not going to build anything. So no, it wasn't always a part of the plan, but I recognize now for the goals that I had set that getting into and mastering real estate, it was a necessity. Yeah. Okay. That's what's up. So like, you know, I know you said, um, I know you said it, you you just said at one point that, you know, it wasn't something that you could actually get into, you know, something that you wouldn't recommend getting to yourself. So like, did you, did you like go straight into it by yourself or did you have a group of guys that you were already, you know, you already have a, you already had a conversation with about real estate? No, man, when I did it, Actually, I think I was probably the only person in like my peer group who yeah. had done it. So I had some guys like that I'm closer to who like, you know, a few years older than me. They had wives and stuff at the time and kids or whatever, and they had bought homes. But I I wasn't we weren't com- communicating on a level where I would have reached out to them and said, yo, like, how do I do this? You know, and the only other person in my life who I knew had ever bought a home was my dad. And even there you know, I think the approach is, is different because I'm buying different. Like, so I guess it's to say that, you know, it, okay. It's to say it like this, let's say I needed help with my homework. Right. And so you, you might say to yourself, okay, if I'm in college and I'm taking a college course, anybody who went to college should be able to help me. But we know for a fact that even though we might have gone to the same school, we might even have the same major, Right. That that doesn't necessarily mean that what I need help with, you're going to be able to speak to, not just right. because. And so buying a home or real estate as a as a kind of uh, economy is like that. So, OK, my dad bought a house right. 20 years ago, but the kind of purchase that I'm looking at making. So specifically, I'm looking to purchase, uh, you know, a home, not use my personal credit, buy it inside of a business entity, write off depreciation. Um, on the uh, building, you know, all of these things that don't necessarily go into buying a single family home for your family. Right. So I just had to kind of jump out there, do my Googles, buy some stuff. I had a whole lot of deals, um, just go sour, lost a lot of money, made a lot of money. And then yeah. just through trial and error, I kind of figured it out. So 
that was kind of the one of the motivating factors behind developing Wolf Anchor Properties is because I'm saying, okay, I lost X amount of money, X thousands of dollars figuring this out on my own. I have a horde of people that I know and love and care about that I can save money and time with them, you know, and so they don't have to do it the way that I did it. Um, you know, they can they can be benefactors of my experience. Yeah, that's what's up, man. Now you said um the one one thing that stood out to me was like uh you said that when you were getting a real estate, um what what was it? Was it? I'm trying to say, I'm sorry. Um, did you ever, did you ever like, okay, yeah, when you lost the money, um, Mm -hmm. what were some of the, I guess what, like, what's the hardest hit that you ever had? Like, did you experience that like first coming in or, you know, did you experience that like, you know, a year or two in the game? So there's a couple of instances and some of them, like the hits are going to be different. So there are some hits that you don't know you took till after the fact, you know? And so those those manifest more like money left on the table. Mm-hmm. So you get done with the deal, you know, all the pay- paperwork is signed, the ink is dry, you've gone home, you slept on it, you're feeling good about it. And, you know, you on Google or you watching a, you know interview or listening to a podcast or whatever, right. and you find out that, oh, you could have structured your deal this way. And that would have saved you another, saved or made you another $10,000. And it's like, yo, nobody $10,000 you know what I mean like $10,000 what I could have made doing this one little trick or making this one little adjustment may have surpassed the total amount of money that I made on this deal to begin with right so stuff like that can hurt on the back end there are some losses that you recognize kind of immediately and so like for example I had um this one run maybe like two years ago where I had a tenant and so I was I mean, for all intents and purposes, I was at the beginning of my kind of real estate journey, specifically around landlording. So managing tenants is a skill. Like, you know, if you are not that all jobs are going to care, but I think it's the kind of skill that we're putting on a resume. If you can manage tenants, it's a thing. And so I wasn't particularly good at it at the beginning of my journey. So I had this one guy, wild dude, and, you know, he did like tree work for a living and to make a long story short, he ended up, I had like one key. So I, I made multiple mistakes. I had like one key for the building. He had the key. He was doing long work for a family, ended up driving away with some of their equipment. He gets arrested, goes to jail with my key, um, leaves his um, mentally impaired girlfriend in the unit. She doesn't want to leave the unit because she can't lock it because he has the key. I can't get the key oh, because you have to, oh my God, it gets it gets worse. So I was working full time at the time I'm working in Winston. He's in jail in Greensboro. I could, I had the right as the person who owns the property to come and retrieve my key from his um, property, from his possessions. But I had to come between two and three in the afternoon. And so it wasn't super feasible for me to leave my job at that time, drive to Greensboro, wait however long I was going to have to wait, blah, 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 blah. But I couldn't even do it on a lunch. And I was expecting a kid soon, so I didn't want to burn vacation. So it was like, it was getting out of hand. So I wrapped that up, but there was a lot of, I lost probably in rents. I probably lost in collected rents. I probably lost like upwards $2,000, $3,000. And then you add how much money you didn't make from the amount of money that you had to pay out of your pocket for the mortgage, insurance, and, you know, lights. This goes on and on and on. Wow. some of those lessons come out of things like that. Yeah. yeah. 
Now, sure. I, I could imagine, man, like, as you're going through that, like, what's what's going through your mind? You know, what was going through your mind at the time of that <laughs> Man, I was, you know, what I was really trying to figure out is how to stop the bleeding. Yeah. You know, like, I think once you get punched in the mouth and you got a little leak and it's like, all right, I mean, the punch isn't really the worst part. Fact. The worst part is, you know, if you've ever been, I don't know if you've been punched in the mouth. You don't have to tell yeah. me. But if you've ever been punched in the mouth, that the actual like moment that you get punched isn't the worst part. Right. It's the the two week and a half, two weeks after, where every time <laughs> you eat something with tomato in it, your mouth burns. And it's like, how do I get the pain to go away? Right. Is the worst part. So for me, it was it was trying to figure out how to stop the bleeding. Okay, I made an initial mistake in not managing this relationship in this way. And I recognize yeah. that now, but I'm trying to figure out, okay, now that I know that, what can I do different or better that's going to bring this problem to a resolution as quickly and as profitably as possible? Thanks. And so that was kind of like what was on my mind. And some of the answers to those questions just had a lot to do with just being assertive. You know, I just wasn't being assertive enough. I was being incredibly accommodating. And like, if you're a decent and nice person, you know, I think that's our kind of natural inclination. But, you know, um, one of my homies uh, out of Charlotte uh, used to tweet all the time. He used to have threads about this all the time, and I can credit him for teaching me this. But there was a, there's a big difference between being nice and being good, mm. you know. And like in business, if you're being nice, you're probably being taken advantage of, right? And it's, it's I could have been a good person without letting them take advantage of, you know, my accommodating spirit. And because I hadn't made that realization, then. I lost money. Right. So, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely feel that, man, because I'm definitely the, uh, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I'm definitely yeah. accommodating type. So, I, I definitely understand where you're coming from. Um, now you mentioned like, so, you know, you mentioned something about you know different ways to get into real estate. What mm -hmm. are like for people that don't know, what are some different ways that people can get into real estate? Okay. So, I mean, and I'll keep it high level because we could probably do like eight podcasts on this, but yeah. the, just from a basic standpoint, landlording is what most people know. So in real estate, we call that buy and hold. The idea being that you're going to buy a property and hold it for a long-term period. Um, and during that period, you're going to lease it either for residential or commercial use. It doesn't really matter. So you're going to rent it to people who are going to live in it, or you're going to rent this mixed use building to, I don't know, uh, a boutique or, you know, whatever, somebody for storage, whatever the case may be. But the principal idea being that you're, you're planning to hold on to it. Mm -hmm. The There's also uh, fixing flipping, which I think most people are familiar with. If you watch HDTV or whatever, there's a whole lot of that going on on TV. And the idea is that you're going to buy um, a property undervalued uh, for whatever reason you know, either it's dilapidated. So if you watch it on the TV, more often than not, it's going to be because it's trash. Because that's exciting. Taking something from trash to glitz and glam is something that everybody wants to watch. But there are other forms of what we would call distressed properties. And it's either because the property itself is distressed or the people who own the property are distressed. Mm. So either the property itself is terrible or, you know, this person just filed bankruptcy or they're going through a divorce. So they lost their job. Or they, you know, on the positive side, they got a brand new job in California, but they got to be out there next week, right? And they don't want to manage this property from California yeah. that 
you know, is in North Carolina. So they're willing to sell it for whatever because they don't have time for it to be on the market for 60 days or whatever the case may be. So if you can buy those kind of properties and the chances that you're going to pay market value are slim to none. Right. So you're going to buy below market. You may or may not do work to it that increases its value and then you're going to sell it at or above market and then collect the margin, which is the profits. So that's fix and flip. The other way or the third and most popular way is what we call wholesaling. So wholesaling is essentially um, operating as a, a middleman or a dot connector. So you are identifying opportunities to make money for people who are anxious to buy and people who are anxious to sell. So in the scenario that I just gave you, say for the fix and flip, let's say there's a guy who's, you know, got a new job, starts in California next week, needs to get rid of his house right now. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go to an agent having them listed because in my area, it takes an average of 60 to 80 days for a home to sell. And I don't have that kind of time. Right. And Austin approaches him and I say, Hey, you know, Mr. Guy, I know you got a job um, out in California. If you will allow me, I will put your home on a contract. Contract just means that you give me the authority to do business on behalf of this property. Mm-hmm. So essentially I own it on paper. Um, so I'm going to put your home on a contract. And if you allow me to do that, I'll make you X number of dollars on a sale. Right. And then, so they're going to say, yeah, I'm going to take that contract and I'm going to take it to a buyer and I'm going to sell it for more than I, more than I'm selling, more than I promised the seller. So let's just say I put it on the contract. I told him I was going to make him 30,000. And he wants to sell it for fifty. That means that I would, at the very least, have to sell it for eighty to get him thirty thousand dollars out of it, right? But if I went and sold it to another person for a hundred, I only need to pay eighty out of that hundred out. Fifty for the mortgage, thirty to the guy who's selling it. The other twenty is out in the atmosphere, and that's mine. Wow. So the way that wholesaling works is you stand as a middleman to connect buyers and sellers. And then you collect what we're going to call a transaction fee for being in the middle. Mm-hmm. That's It's an extremely profitable approach to real estate. The most difficult part about it is that it requires in some level for you to have a network. You need to know people who know people who want to sell. You need to know people who know people who want to buy. Mm. And so, and you need to be able to put them together. And you need to be able to present yourself to both groups as a person who knows enough about this to get it done. Right. Because it's like, why would I go to you if I could just call my friendly neighborhood real estate agent who I right. know went to school and took a test and did all this other stuff, works under a broker and the list goes on and on and on. Right. So if I'm not going to work with them, I need to understand and be able to articulate why I would work with you instead. OK. OK. So like out of all three of those um, paths into getting real estate, um which one would you feel is like the riskiest as far as, you know, someone losing money or, you know, just stuff like that? The riskiest in terms of losing money. And I'm going to, I'm going to answer this. I don't want to split hairs, but I want to be accurate. So the risk is, is going to, I would say the risk across all three with an asterisk is pretty equal. Mm. And I'm saying that because an informed person has as much chance or as much, you know, opportunity to lose money across all of them. For if you are uninformed, by far to me, the most risky one is fixing and flipping. 
um, because it requires you to know a lot of things that I think the average just pedestrian does not know. Right. And so, you know, when it comes to purchasing the building in and of itself, that's one thing. Purchasing and coordinating the work on the building, assuming that you bought something that was dilapidated or run down or whatever. For your beginners, it's rare that I think they're going to be able to find and close deals for distressed persons. So like people going through foreclosure, divorce, whatever. Somebody who's starting today probably doesn't have a, a vast network that can let them know when that's happening for people, right? But they might be able to drive around the neighborhood and say, you know, that looks like crap. Maybe I can buy it. So, yeah. you know, buying the property, kind of uh, calculating or assessing the work that's needed in the tools and um, materials necessary to get that done. And then the third thing, and this is the biggest kind of money suck when it comes to fix and flipping is managing the contractors. Mm. So if you don't understand managing contractors, there's a lot of money to be lost in that. So, I mean, even when we talk about like change orders, for example, so, you know, if you go into business with a contractor, there are ways that you need to write your contract that protect you from losing money because what will end up happening or what could happen is that you have contractors who will come in, you'll quote them a certain amount of uh, work for a certain price. You all agree. They go to do the work and then they come back to you and they say, oh, in order to do this work, I need to be, I need to use this kind of material or do this process. And I didn't know that at the beginning, but this is what it costs now, right? So either you can pay me to do it or you can go find somebody else to do it. And they're banking on you not going to find anybody else to do it, one, and you don't know any better, two. But you don't know that the same work could have been done with X material as opposed to Y that would have saved you $10,000. And so on the back end, all they're doing is increasing their fee and you don't know how to counteract that argument because you don't have anything to answer them with. Do you know which is better for this room, natural uh, stone or veneer? Can you put it in here? Is the moisture level okay? You know what I mean? Those kind of things that get like, you know, into the weeds. It feels like you're getting into the weeds. But if you don't understand that or if you don't have somebody on your team who understands it, then you're probably going to get taken, you know. So for the uninformed, I would definitely say fix and flipping is the most um risky from a financial standpoint yeah now um like when it comes to the contractors do you ever have like situations where contractors are kind of like pocket watching or, you, or is there anybody that you know you got to watch out for that they kind of want to make sure you don't get paid more than they do like do you have to ever think about something like that <laughs> uh not not really i imagine that it might happen the bigger that your projects are gonna get yeah you know but for the most part, I mean, I think if you are the way to get around this kind of because, OK, I'll say it this way. The only time I think that that's going to be an issue is when payment is being the level of payment or compensation is being developed subjectively. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm just deciding off the top of my, my head that this should cost this. Right. The way to get around that is on the front end is just to have multiple quotes. Right. So this is. If I have multiple quotes for the work and I'm getting multiple quotes for every job on every project over X amount of time. So let's just say I've been doing this for five years. I do three deals a year. So, you know, we get 15 deals total and I've done three quotes for every project I've had across all 15 of those. At some point, 
you're going to develop like just like i mean if you are if you're a football or a basketball fan or whatever before you were a fan or before you started watching those sports if i told you you know this person's shooting you know 70% from the field you don't know what that means right like there's no context for the the variable right but at a certain point you're going to be able to look at a bathroom and the person who's standing beside you is saying yeah i mean i could do this whole thing mm, maybe for $1200 and you're going to know whether or not that's fair right. you know or if they're telling you oh i can you know i can yank out the toilet yank out the sink replace those throwing in uh, a new drywall behind it because this one's rotted through throw some insulation back there blah 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 list off whatever they're going to do and then they give you a ballpark number after a certain amount of it experience you're going to be able to say oh, okay that's fair on the other side and this comes i think kind of full circle back to your question when you have contractors who are dealing with folks who they know are experienced there's not going to be a whole lot of that bickering, right? Like you're not going to come to me and say like, I don't feel like you're paying me fair because you know that I know what fair is. Right. Right. It's not my first rodeo. I know how much it costs to do a floor. So no, I'm not going to pay you that. And I know I have X, Y, and Z. So this is the other thing when we're talking about what other people get paid. This is probably one of the few, I shouldn't say that because I don't know what's going on in other industries, but I'll say in real estate, Yes. Is one of those industries where knowing what other people are getting paid is actually beneficial. It's not something I'm trying to hide, right? Because if I'm, if I can get it done well for $600 and I put that out there, people's only option, if they want to work with me or if they don't, I don't know, if, if we're having conversation about that, is either to meet or beat that price or go away. Right. But if I got a guy who can do it for 600, I'm good for 600, then I'm in the best position because either I can keep going back to him or I can bring in people who are willing to beat his price on a given project. So I, it's something I want to advertise. It's something I want to lead with. I want to say, typically I spend about $600 for a bathroom in this size. Can you beat that? Mm. Gotcha. You know, and then they'll, they'll, in those conversations, I think you get an idea about whether or not you're dealing with people who know what they're, they're talking about. They're, they'll say, like, for example, you know, they might say, yeah, or no, but on either side, they'll say, yeah, I mean, I could beat it, but you should anticipate that this and this and this is going to be a part of the deal. And I might say, okay, that makes sense. So they say, oh, I can't beat it because, you know, you're not considering this and this and this and this. And I might say, oh, okay, no, that's a good point too. But either way, it's going to open us up for a conversation that's going to allow both me and the contractor to know whether or not the person they're dealing with knows what they're talking about. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. So like, you know, when, you, when you're talking to them, um, is there a certain type of jargon that you're looking for? Um, like, you know, certain wording, like how does that work? Not particularly. I mean, I think naturally what comes from being in the business is that people begin to speak in jargon or terms that are specific to, you know, what it is that that we're doing you know they start talking about joists and and you know junctions and blah 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 i mean i I think you kind of expect people to throw that around because i mean they everybody i think wants to present as uh, knowledgeable as they can i you know everybody wants to be received as a person who knows what they're talking about i'm not necessarily looking for you to speak the right language per se in terms of word choice i do want to be inspired to be confident in you based on what you do say right so i want you to come in and tell me what can be done what can't be done 
what you can do, how much it's going to cost, why it's going to cost that, how long it's going to take, right? And what kind of um, guarantees do I have, yeah. right? So those are the kind of things that give me confidence. So as an example of what that does not look like, I was getting a floor, um, this is about two and a half weeks ago, two and a half, three weeks ago, I was getting a new um, floor put into the kitchen of one of my units. And so I had a guy come out. I'm not going to say from what company because they pissed me off. But yeah. I had a guy come out from the, from the company. The, bath, the, I said bathroom. the kitchen currently has like this old tile in it. It's not terrible, but the rest of the unit has been um, renovated. So and it's got that kind of like, you know, modern gray, white, bright white kind of aesthetic to it. But the kitchen looks like a 70s kind of kitchen. It's an old tile. It's kind of burgundy-ish whatever not not super sexy right. not terrible but not sexy especially not compared to the rest of the unit so i'm like okay i'm just gonna redo what's up guys i hope you're enjoying the show if you are i want you to take a screenshot of yourself listening and i want you to tag at underscore the black both media pod that'll be a big help as far as getting the message out also i want you to go ahead and leave a five-star review and go ahead and subscribe. And let's get back to the show. That cabinet should redo the floor. So I have a guy come out, look at the floor. And he tells me, yeah, I can do it for um, $1,200. I can do this kitchen, entire floor, plus the, um, ah, the word's going to escape me now. Whatever. Pretty much the boundary, I guess, the kind of runner between the floors. So the kitchen floor meets up against the living room floor. And you want transition. That's what I'm looking for. You want it to be a smooth transition. So there's a transitional piece and they're going to do um, the runner around the room. So he's like, yeah, I can do it for 1200 And I'm like, great. So I asked him explicitly because it's not my first rodeo. Are you going to be able to put that over the floor or do I need to pay an additional fee to have you all take the tile up? So because he's trying to close the sale, I assume he tells me, you know, no, it's fine. We can put it over the floor. I said, are you sure? He said, oh, I'm absolutely sure because we have to make sure that the installation meets the manufacturer standards. Otherwise, we can't put a warranty on it. And if we can't put a warranty on it, our installers don't get paid. So it's a guarantee. So I say, all right, mm. if, you're, if, if your pay is based on it, I trust you. Because, I mean, if you're saying you do it wrong, you're not going to get paid. Right. Then you got more skin in the game than I do. Because I'm still going to get paid whether I get this floor done or not. Right. So, you know, whatever. So I, we set up a date. We're coordinating. This is a lot because I'm physically going to have to come be there. They have to get paid before they install the floor. So I'm going to have to go to the unit, which is in a different city that I live in. I have to make sure that my tenant is going to be there because I don't want somebody else in their property and they're not there because I'm not staying. Um, so, you know, we're coordinating multiple schedules. The day comes for the install. I get there. The guys get in there. They say, hey, it's tiled out. And I say, yeah, I know that. I mentioned it to the guy who came out and gave me the quote. And they said, no, we can't do that. Wow. We can't install it over the tile. We have to take it out. So you're going to have to pick another date. So this is a, a minor inconvenience as far as inconveniences go. Considering, right. I mean, I don't know, your water heater could explode. That's a bigger inconvenience. But it's an inconvenience nonetheless. But what it signals to me is that the first guy that I dealt with from this company is not a person whom inspires confidence in me. Because it's a simple, a simple thing as knowing whether or not you can install over a tile is something that you fumbled on. Are we going to go and do bigger and vaster and more expensive projects together? Probably not. Right. But something as simple as being accurate 
in the information that you present is all really that I think is necessary to create kind of lasting and positive and healthy business relationships. So that's pretty much what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that's it. So, um, you know, earlier you mentioned something about X amount of deals per year. Um, mm-hmm. I know you said like three, de- three deals a year. I don't know if that was an example or like, do you, how many deals a year do you do? So if I can, in a good year, I think three is great. Yeah. Um, specifically, I'm I'm saying three from a buy and hold standpoint. So I don't know that I mentioned that, but I should say that I'm not big into wholesaling and I'm not big into flipping, though I've done both. Right. Um, and so my decision to not do those two came from my experience. Though I made money, I didn't make money really the way I want to make it. And that is passively, as, right. if possible, right? And so... There are ways to do those two, uh, fix and flip or flipping and wholesaling passively, but they require building out systems that I have little to no interest in building out. So I do almost exclusively buying holes. Buying holes, from my perspective, come slower because, you know, in a, in a fix and flip, you might buy it, do some work to it over a 30 day period, put it back on the market and sell in 15 days. And, you know, you could close the cycle in 45 to 60 days. Where, you know, for buy and hold, there is no such cycle considering that I'm planning on holding it indefinitely. So instead of making $30,000 in a 45-day period, I'm going to make, let's say, I don't know, $2,000 over a four-month period, which is slower money, but truer money to me as far as I'm concerned. The bigger issue with buying and holding is that these are mortgages that you are carrying. And so from a one of the bigger, I'm not going to call that mistake, but one of the bigger hurdles that I think people fall into when they first get into real estate is that they're purchasing um, property under their name. So the the biggest hurdle that that's going to create is you have what's called a DTR, your debt to income ratio, right? So the bank is looking at, when we look at how much money you make gross, what percentage of that money is tied up in monthly obligations or debt service obligations, Right. And the bank does not want your debt service kind of obligation percentage to exceed 35 to 40%. Mm. The challenge that that creates is for most people, once they buy one home, their DTI pushes, you know, 35 to 40%. Mm. Are you going to be able to buy a second or a third or a fourth? You're not going to be able to be approved through conventional methods. Right. And so being able to, Either make enough money that you're you can take on more debt without hitting that for forty percent, or developing a, a business infrastructure, a business financial infrastructure that can sustain multiple mortgages without you buying them or holding them in your name is necessary. And because that's the case, if you can buy and hold as just a regular pedestrian, I'm talking like you're not a millionaire, you didn't come from money, you know, you got a regular people job. If you can, if you can buy and hold on to three units in a year, you're killing it. Mm. Okay. Okay. That's what's up. Um, And I should add just as a, for more context, like, so, okay. Because if you were going to go and buy a home just for you, right. Right. You have available, there are multiple loans, kinds of loans that you can use in in today's economy. You know, the idea of putting 20, 
percent down on a home like mandatory is is false you don't have to do that i mean you can find multiple lenders that will let you pay as little as three percent to no percent depending on down depending on where you're moving to right so it's 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 way easier to buy a single family home now than potentially what it looked like in like the 70s or something like that Mm. on the commercial side there are no such loans right so you're never gonna they're never going to hear of somebody saying, oh, I put 3% down on a commercial unit. That's not the thing. It's actually more than the 20% they usually hear. So most institutions are only going to finance up to 65 to 70% of the purchase, which means you're going to come up with 25 to 30% of the money down. Oh. And if you're buying a unit that, you know, a house that's $100,000, you need $30,000 in cash to do this on the, on the making money side, not the, I'm going to live in it side. Right. So, you know, if you can do that three times in a year, that's where that, that is coming from. If you can do that three times in a year in some way, shape or form, come up with 30% of a purchase three times in a 360 day period, you wrote it. Wow. That's, now that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Now, like, was that something that, you were able to do yourself or like, did you have to, you know, of course you did trial and error. Um, Mm -hmm. Did did it come easy to you as you learned, learned about it? Easy? No, but I was able to pull it off on my own. And that's only because I think, you know, what has to be mastered. And I'll say this for anybody who's listening. If you want to be able to scale in your real estate business, assuming that you're going to start one, if you want to be able to scale, the very first thing that you're going to have to master is business credit, mm. which is vastly different from personal credit, which most people understand to be, you know, in numerical form, the FICO score, right? So, oh, I have a 500 or a 600 or a 700 or an 800 credit score. I'm doing great, which is good because in order to build out business credit, the first thing they look at is your personal credit, right? So, or when you're first building your business credit, they're going to look at your personal credit in addition to your business profile because there's not a lot there, right? Hopefully, though, at some point, you build it to the level where you're, you don't have to put up, like, so for right now, if I'm going to go open up a business credit account, I don't give them my social security number because mm-hmm. they don't need it, right? They're going to run the EIN for my business, which is the equivalent um, if you want to think about equivalence, the EIN is the equivalent of your social security number for your business. Right. They're going to run that. They're going to look at my business profile and they're going to say, oh, we don't need his personal credit because this is sufficient. Right. And the reason why that's important is because earlier I was telling you a little bit about that DTR. There is no such number on the business side. Right. So they don't care. Um, well, I shouldn't say there's no such number, but. I should say that they evaluate and look at debt differently for a business than they do it for an individual. Mm, okay. So for an individual, debt is a liability. And for a business, debt is expected. Right? So if I look at your business, you have no debt or you don't have any access to credit at all. I'm, I'm curious about what kind of business you're doing. Are you growing? Are you kind of stratifying? Are you scaling? If you don't have access to capital, probably not. Right. On the individual side, we look at, you know, the less debt that you have, the better. Right. Because there's a reason for that, though, because on the individual side, there isn't any real correlation between how much people borrow and how they make, how much they make. Right. So people borrow 
hundreds of thousands of dollars and make, you know, what people who didn't go to school at all make happens every day, right? Like, oh, I was at Enterprise. I worked at Enterprise, like one of my first jobs right out of school. And I was there. I went to to Winston on a full ride. But I was there with people who, like, graduated from Wake. And, you know, they got, like, $200,000 in school debt. I have none. We're working the same job. So we know that there's no correlation, really, in how much you borrow and how much you make. But on the business side, um, controlling for people who don't know what they're doing, on the business side, there's an expectation that the more money you make, the more money you borrow, the more money you're going to make. So um, once you build out the business credit, what ends up happening, to just kind of close that loop, when you build out your business credit, you get access to business funding and business funding is what allows you to kind of infuse and grow your business. So, Oh, I'm going to do these three, three deals a year. But the reason why I'm able to do that, people are like, I mean, well, how much money you make at your job? And I'm like, nah, it's not my job that's paying for this. Right. It's, Oh, I've built out my credit profile in such a way that they're saying, Oh, I'll give you $25,000 unsecured. You can do whatever you want with it. Right. And I'm going to take it to 25, I'm going to purchase a unit. I'm going to do $5,000 of work on it. I'm going to refinance that building, take the money from the refinance, pay off the money that I borrowed on the business side. I'm going to hold this building because I'm not paying the mortgage. My tenant is, and that 25 I borrowed is free and clear because I paid it off with the refinance and I can do it again. So you're recycling the money, but you have to be able to have access to private funds to do that. And that's the one kind of, you know, we talk about the missing link in science, like, what is it that gets, you know, this group of people from this to this? How do people, how do we go from whacking each other over the head with clubs to building skyscrapers? What happened in the middle? And the same thing can be asked for how does a person go from kind of perpetual suburbia and pe- perpetual kind of pedestrian life to living a life that is, you know, that they can live on their terms. And the missing link that's in the middle of there is access to private money. Mm, okay. Okay. Now, you mentioned something about refinance. I've always heard that word, but I, I've never understood what it was. Could could you explain that? Yeah. So a refinance, and if you want to, I mean, for, for everybody that's listening, I want you, this is a good opportunity to demystify a lot of the things that have been presented to you, because I think there there's money in making these things more complicated than what they are, yeah. right? So there are people who are whose services are solely offered based on the fact that they have made their perspective and respective markets more complicated than they need to be so that people believe that they need to pay for their help. A refinance, all it is is allowing another institution, let's say you borrow from institution A, a refinance is allowing institution B to buy your loan. Okay, okay. That's it. The incentive for doing that for a person whose loan it is. So let's say I own a home, I have a mortgage on my home and I want to refinance. Right. There's a couple of things that are a couple of incentives that are available to me if I do that. So a company that wants to buy my mortgage might offer me a lower rate than I currently have, right? Um, you have what's called amortization. So this is the, the calculation of your payment over the term year. So over 30 years, how much is your payment going to be? Mm. And for each one of those payments, how much of the payment goes to your principal and how much goes to interest, right? Mm. And so for every payment you make, more, of your, more and more of your money goes to principal and less and less of your money goes to interest until at the very end, 
you've paid off all your interest. It's purely principal, and then your principal goes to zero. Okay. So if you keeping that in mind, though, if you were, let's say you had a mortgage for 30 years, mortgage, you're 10 years in, and your mortgage payment was $700, mm. right? Over the 10 years that you've been paying on that mortgage, you owe less money now than you did when you first got the mortgage. Yeah. That makes sense, right? If you were to refinance now, you would have a brand new loan for 10 years less than you originally borrowed. So you already have a smaller loan, right? You have a smaller loan that's now for a new 30 years. You only had 20 left on your own when you got 30 on this new one. So the more years you have, the more payments you can make, which means the smaller your payments are. So you have less money. Your loan is smaller. It's over a longer period of time, if you want to think about it like that. So you have a smaller amount of money stretched over a longer period of time, which means your payments might go from 700 to 450. If I've, you know, if I'm, you know, I don't know, switching jobs or if I'm moving to a, you know, a different area, there's any number of reasons why you want to do that. The third and probably most profitable reason that people refinance is what's called a cash out. So there are um, companies, banks, whatever, that will buy your loan and uh, the amount, I'll, I'll give you an example, then I'll give you a yeah. definition because it might be, it's easier to understand that way. So let's just say that I own a property that is worth 100K, mm-hmm. right? And I have a mortgage on it right now for 50K. Right. There are banks. A bank is going to say to you, we'll refinance uh, your home up to 75 percent, which means that we'll give you a mortgage up to 75 percent of the value Mm -hmm. of your home on a hundred thousand dollar home. That's seventy five thousand dollars. Right. If they were to do that for you, fifty thousand dollars would go towards your mortgage because that's what you currently owe on it. Right. So they would give fifty thousand to the bank that's currently holding your mortgage. And you have a new mortgage with them for 50000 But if they gave you 75, 75% of the value of the home, they gave you 75. So 50 went to the bank, 25 went to you oh in cash. Oh, gosh. And so now, if you accept that, you have a $75,000 mortgage with this bank. 50 of it, you owe them. 25 of it, they gave you in cash. And you can go do that with that what you will. So you'll hear a lot of times when people talk about refinancing, the context that they're speaking of it in is, oh, you know, this person's kids just went off to school, so they refinanced the home and then they paid for their school, right? And like, oh, you're like, oh, how does that work? Essentially, what they did is, if, you know, you got a kid, the average age for a kid to go to school is 18 to 20 years. Let's say you bought your home when you got pregnant with the kid or whatever. You've been paying on it for 20 years. You got 20 years of equity in that home. Mm. So when you refinance, in that scenario is a very real one. They might've had upwards $25,000 in equity that they can pull from. They got that in cash. They pay for the kids school. They going about their business. So that's essentially how refinances work. So most of the time people are either looking to get a lower payment, um, get a better rate, get a new term. So that's, you know, the 30 years versus the 20 that you had. And the consequence of that, of course, is normally a, a lower payment, probably a better rate. And then there's the, possibility of a cash out where they're going to give you part of the um part of your new mortgage in cash okay yeah i i appreciate it i like how you broke that down because i've heard it and you know i've looked it up but i never actually got the concept but while you were 
uh, breaking it down for me. I, I got a whole visual, so I, I definitely understand. That stuff. Um, so, sure. so you know, before we go, man, I want to ask you, like, what are some of your goals um, for your business and um, real estate development? You know, in the next five, ten years, what would you say? Okay, so right now, so I work full time, which isn't bad. I really like yeah. my job, and I really like. Um, I guess I'll call it the company I work for, but, uh, so though, that's cool. I, I don't really, I don't have aspirations necessarily of, you know, striking out and working for myself a hundred percent of the time. It's just not something I think a lot of the time when we talk about that is there's ego involved. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. People, people want to be a boss because being a boss sounds cool. And it's like, you know, if, if you took the cool factor out of it, if nobody knew that you work for yourself, you know what I mean? And own the company, would you still want to right. do it? And I think the vast majority of people who, if they had to deal with the reality would say no. And so, you know, but I do, I do use the salary that I earn at my job as a metric because I think it's a decent amount of money. And if I can outpace that in my personal business, I think that that's a goal. So in the next five years, I said to say this, in the next five years, I want my business um, earnings to outpace my work mm. earnings. So um, we're at a point. I'm at a point now, and I should qualify that by saying the business earnings that I take, I want those to outpace um, my work earnings. Because one of the things that I think people don't think about is, okay, your business might make X amount of money, but how much of that money is needed to run the business? And right now, my business earnings are close to outpacing my work earnings. But if I took even a fraction of them, I would eliminate them. You know what I mean? So it's um, almost all the money that my business is making has to stay in the business. So um, that's one of my goals. Uh, another one of my goals is to help uh, as many people who are who are close to me or, you know, know me or whom I care about, who are interested in, you know, dipping and dabbing and experimenting with real estate to get them started if I can, you know, and, and help them beyond advice. So specifically, you know, being a, a financial and credit partner to people who are close to me. And so I've, I've formalized that through the business, but on a personal level, you know, being able to go to my brother or my sister and say, you know, what do you want to buy? And how much do you need? You know, and I have I have seven or eight or ten or fifteen thousand, and we can do that if you want to do it. I just need to know that you're committed going into it. We can drive the contract. Let's make it happen. So that's another one of my goals. And um, I talked about the business profile as if it was an absolute thing, and it's not. It's one of those things that's evolving. So my business profile is in such a place that I have access to what I consider to be an insane amount of uh, private funding, but even my profile can get better. And so it's something that I'm actively working on. And so getting my um, profile to what they call tier four. So in business credit, there are four tiers, the fourth being the highest. And it's at that level where, you know, you walk into an institution and say, you know, I want to borrow $50 million and develop, you know, this student housing project by this university. And they say, okay, mm. oh, cool. And so, you know, I'm I'm in tier three now, and I'm looking at getting the tier four in the next year. So, um, you know, it's out there. Those are probably my three 
biggest goals as a like as an honorable mention um and i applaud you i should say this i need to say this as a as a content creator i applaud you for you know getting out there and the biggest thing though for me like being consistent in your offering you know because though i think i have a though i think i know a lot and i think i have a lot to say to people i have not at all um really taken seriously or harness the power of content creation it's not a gift of mine you know and so as an honorable mention i kind of not that i necessarily even want to do it myself but even just finding a medium where you know somebody will do it for me or i could just you know i could be on another person's thing or whatever the case may be just getting to a place where i can share what i know because you know in no way shape or form do i want to hoard it it was hard won but i'll give it out for free if i can so you know those are probably my top goals that's what's up, man. Now, hey, hey, you definitely close to that tier four, man, and that's 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 dope. That is that's big. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Pray for me, man. We gonna we gonna get there. And I mean, it's a it's a it's a thing. I mentioned that though. I think it's important to mention that. And I'm glad you asked that question. Just even about goals, because I think it's easy in the culture that we live in, specifically because egos are involved. Right. And you know, egos are involved, and we know that people are listening. It's easy to you know, get on whatever medium it is and act like you're doing Diddy numbers, you know? And it's like, I don't, I don't know why people do that. I think I do know why they do it, but I don't really know why they do it. And I don't feel inclined to do it. I don't want to sound as if I've arrived at all the places that you can arrive at. Right. I really only want to say to people that I've in conversation when I'm talking to my dad, he's saying, you know, when I was your age, I was here and doing this, right? And you're two and three times ahead of me. And I'm super proud of you for that. And I'm saying, okay, what do I need to do in this lifetime so that my son's or my daughter's performance three and four and five times outpaces mine by this age? And so the only way that you're going to be able to do that is to acknowledge that we haven't really arrived, right? We haven't really even made a dent in what we're capable of. And I though I would consider myself seasoned against most pedestrians, I'm still a beginner as far as real estate goes. Cause there are people who are doing $200 billion in real estate every year and I'm not. So, you know, it's a, it's an important, I think to, to kind of lay out and be clear that though I I consider my business to be successful is definitely in the black, right? We're definitely making profit year over year. I I definitely pay profits. I mean, I definitely pay taxes on those profits. I haven't cracked a million dollars in real estate, though. So, you know, there are things out there that that can be done and will be done. But, you know, it'll be fun. We're going to get there. Definitely, bro. Um, So, yeah, man. So, how could people, um, how can people, you know, get in contact with you, um, you know, email or social media? Yeah, yeah. So, on social media, I don't have a business page per se because it again i'm content creation is not my yeah. gift and honestly it would just it would be a bunch of fluff really anyway but my personal page um i mean I, I it's a lot of my family but my business is up there too so that's av of nazareth it's exactly how it sounds letter a letter v of n-a-z-a-r-e-t-h nazareth and then uh, my business does have a website, though. So I do believe yeah. in that. Um, that's a part of building out your business credit. That's just free game. If you're going to eventually look to get 
credit or have access to private funding for your business, you absolutely have to have a website. So mine is www.wolfanchorproperties.com. It's wolfanchorproperties.com. No spaces. Um, no, what do they call them? Whatever. So it's just the, yeah. the words essentially, but you know, and what my business does, um, how we do it, um, why we do it is all on the website. And there's also a kind of outreach page there. If you don't, if you're not on social media, you can shoot me an email or drop me a line and, and we can work it out that way. Yeah. But so that's pretty much it, man. But thank you. Thank you for having me, man. And yeah, man. I, I appreciate you for, for, you know, coming up here and just breaking it down for us, man. Like, that, that's that's dope. Yeah. Um, people, there are people that are going to listen to this and they going, you know, that's probably going to spark something in their mind. So, um, yeah, man. And, and keep me, I'll say this to you, too. I mean, keep me in mind. I'm certain that people, you know, have follow-ups so that they want to talk about yeah. real estate, whatever. I mean, we can always set it up. You know, if you got the time and the availability and got the interest from your listeners, um, I'm more than happy, you know, to to revisit. We didn't come anywhere close because we yeah. can't. Um, right. But we didn't come anywhere close to hitting all the things that can be hit. I definitely wanted to hit it on a high level just to introduce a lot of things. But, you know, if the need arises, don't hesitate. To hit oh, me, yeah. Man. Def- I got the time. Definitely, man. And, and I was just thinking, man, like, you know, just with us speaking, I'm thinking to myself, I know there's probably so much that we didn't touch, you know, about real estate. So, I mean, you know, we can definitely get a part two going in the future. So um, I'm going to definitely keep you in mind, man. Most definitely. Yeah. No worries. yeah. Um, so that's it, guys. That's that's the end of the episode. Um, again, we had Austin Greer. Um, I appreciate you, man. Uh, thank you for coming up here um, and just sharing everything with us. And uh, that's it, guys. We out. Peace. Uh, what's up guys it's me again so tell me what'd you think about the show i really hope you enjoyed it if you did I would love for you to take a screenshot and tag at underscore the Black Wealth Media Pod and share this on your Instagram stories with your friends. That would be very appreciated. Also, go inside the podcast app to subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and a five-star review. This helps us get the message across all over the world so more people can listen. On top of that, I really do hope you guys enjoy the show. And I'll see you next week on the Black Wealth Media Podcast.